Welcome back. It's part two of my dad's testimony. The events he tells about are from 1972 to approximately 1982. I hope you feel like you're getting to know the man my father was and um, just get to feel about what he's been through and what where I come from. But let's just get right back into it. Lost will be renewed long ago in the garden it was to be. Now a dream fulfilled in you and me. Whoa. We're up to that point. You meet his name was Steve, and his wife's name was Caroline, which is Susan's sister. And I still didn't know Susan at this time. And he decides he's going to join us in Oklahoma, where we were kind of centering at the time. And he moves up there. And it was at that time when. Uh, things begin to kind of move out of control. And uh, Jerry, of course, jumped on with Steve, and they even started considering, well, this Steve guy, maybe he's called to be the other. And I'll make a long story short for you to have understand the theology of dispensationalism or whatever. Uh, we began to consider the idea that it was time for the two witnesses to be raised up, the spirit of Elijah and the spirit of Moses. And uh, there was a lot of ministries, William, you know, from the 60s, early 50s, all the way through that, that were prophesying these type of things. And they had a dispensational view of prophecy, and they began to look towards the day when the, the two witnesses were going to be revealed, and they would begin their ministry, and they would have a three-and-a-half-year ministry in the earth, and they would be both killed in Jerusalem, and, uh, and then they'd be resurrected in the sight of the world and ascend into the heavens. You know, that, that was a, a common belief. Uh, for dispensational views of prophecy at that time. And, and there was beginning to be consideration, well, if Jerry may be called to be a, an Elijah ministry, maybe this other guy, because he was so powerful. His gifts, what appeared to be gifts, were so deep, so rich, so phenomenal, that, that it, was in, it was undeniable. And But they joined us, and we began to meet. And uh, then, then we had one thing happen that kind of began to mess with me a little bit was one night, out of nowhere, one of our friends brings home uh, a black brother. And this black brother sits down with us and begins to talk. And he begins to declare to all of us that he was the Elijah ministry that uh, God was raising up in America. And there I was. You know, I kind of moved from all this sequence of events. There were some disappointments, but not much. It was hard to disappoint a young mind. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot there up to that time that had really been real discouraging, you know, that would have really caused you to start asking hard questions. But when I sat in the living room and there were two men in there both claiming to have heard from God that they were called to be the Elijah ministry uh, to America, and they were having discussions about it, and the one was an absolute flake, the black guy was an absolute flake. And, and I remember Jerry kind of talking with him and debating and and the, and the black guy says, I'm the real Elijah, and I've got more power than you got. And he began to rebuke him and tear into him, point his wow. finger. And, uh, uh, you know, we're sitting here, and this is going, I remember going, hmm, two guys that think they're Elijah. And, I mean, that was kind of my first question mark that dawned in my brain up to that point. And, and I don't think I was a super naive or extra stupid, but up to that point, it, it happened in sequence, just basically the way I shared it. And uh, so 
I remember kind of going away that night, kind of wondering about this guy. I knew he was a flake, and and uh, but at that time things begin to really accelerate, and they begin to move. We uh, caution was kind of, Jerry began to kind of throw caution to the wind, and we were moving towards the the fall and winter of 1974, the beginning of 1975, and. Uh, uh, this other guy, Steve, Susan's ex-brother-in-law, stands up and says he has a vision that a major blizzard was coming to the Midwest and that the blizzard was going to be so bad that people were going to freeze to death and starve to death in their houses before they could recover people. It was going to be so cold, the snow was going to be so extreme, the power was going to be cut off, and the possibility to get to uh, the markets and get food and things like that was going to take place. And I remember the night he declared that vision, Jerry jumps up, and he goes, it's the word of the Lord, and we got to broadcast it to the whole area. So we begin to, some of us still work jobs and stuff, and some of us didn't, but we begin to pool our money. And uh, I remember saying to Jerry, I said, shouldn't we pray about this before uh, we broadcast this? And he just kind of jumps on me. He said, brother, it's time to let that unbelief go, and it's time to move forward right now. God is moving. It's time to go. And, and this was kind of where we, we had moved along this whole sequence of building blocks to a point where we begin to wonder, is God calling us to something very unique and very wild, even consider it? And to the point where that, remember that, that night event, there's going to be a blizzard in the Midwest, and, we, and Jerry jumps on and says, we need to proclaim this to the whole area. So we take out large newspaper ads, get on the radio, Broadcast it in the winter of '75. There's going to be a major blizzard. It was at that time I, I'd really begin to question, for the first time in a major way, are we? Are we? Is something wacky here? Have we gotten off on the wrong trail? It's, when did it happen? You couldn't. You, you know, even to this day, to be honest with you, I can't go back to a point. We uh, we start the blizzard thing. It was at this time. Uh, me and Kevin made a trip to Tennessee because we'd heard about some brethren. Of, like mind and hearts and and with us that were similar to us through Caroline. through Caroline she was from Charlotte and and I'd heard about her sister and, and some of the friends they had and they'd all moved to the mountains of Tennessee preparing for the same type of thing they'd heard the same type of words and they were ready for the the wrath and the end of, end of the world to come so we drive out here we just have an absolutely incredible time in some ways with them just meeting them the commonness uh, the heart uh, Met a guy named Rebel Bellamy, which I won't go into. And uh, anyway, we meet, and uh, while I'm out there in, in Tennessee, taking a long trip, about 1,200 miles to Tennessee, I have a dream one night. And you know, I was never one with all the full of prophecies. I was never one with the prophecies. I was always the one that, you know, usually had a scriptural exhortation or something, but never had a whole lot of prophetic things. And, and I did. I, I had a dream that the blizzard didn't happen. I had a dream. I, in, in the dream, I saw uh, our whole group fall apart. Uh, I had a dream that a, a group of us from uh, Oklahoma ended up moving to Tennessee. I saw great discouragement. I saw great disillusionment in the dream. And I remember kind of keeping that dream in the back of my head, you know. Because here you are, you're in an environment where at best it's very mixed, but you don't know what the difference between mixed and unmixed is. 
And to that point, you're kind of taking it step by step, confirmation, trying to be careful, prove everything by the mouth of two or three witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you know you're moving along and you hear something like that. And, you, and I just basically put it in the back of my mind and never mentioned it to anybody. Went back to Oklahoma and sure enough, the vision didn't happen. That's my hometown. You guys imagine this happened in Huntsville. You guys that are from here. My hometown was a small hometown. Everybody knew everybody, especially people knew me. My dad was a teacher and band director, and I was a musician, et cetera. I had stood up and prophesied at First Baptist Church. I had done all this stuff, and uh, all types of things had happened. And uh, my reputation was already uh, kind of on the line. And this thing didn't happen. And we were basically probably the mocking, the off-scour, the laughingstock of my hometown. The vision didn't happen. Well, it wasn't Jerry that had this vision. It was Steve Smith that had it. And so there was still the consideration, well, we shouldn't have listened to him. We should have just kept on the course we were at. But in the meantime, Jerry's words start falling to the ground. They had never fallen to the ground up to that point. And uh, well, we're still we're kind of trying to plug along. We're trying to recover. We're trying to make sense of it all. About a year later, we a large group of us ended up in Tennessee, and uh, we we had joined a church that was still under the this wings of this earlier big prophetic guy I was telling you about. We we were we came out here to join a church because we were kind of we were kind of grasping for what to hold on to. We were and. Uh, you know, do we let it all go? Do, what do we do here? And we were young in the Lord, you know, and uh, three or four years old in the Lord. And we landed in Tennessee in 1975, the fall. Uh, and um, it was a hard landing. So we landed in Tennessee under ministry thought that would kind of continue on at least the vestige of what we thought had kind of got us there but yet maybe seemed to be more on track than ministry, but we had kind of grown up and started ourselves. And, and anyway, I had kind of, I was the last one to kind of try to stick it out with Jerry. I loved him a lot. We were very close, very, very close friendship. Jerry could never let the dream go. He could never let the dream go. Uh, we we came together to Birmingham, Alabama in 1975 to hear this other ministry. We had determined that we were going to move to Tennessee. We were going to get under a church that had pastors. And we were going to you know learn to be a church, have some type of community life, and kind of see what the Lord had from there. But we got to Birmingham, and Jerry decides that uh, he's not ready to go to Tennessee, that his ministry wasn't through. And he hadn't accepted the fact that we had just flat out missed it. And, and again, it was a hard thing to accept. When you when you saw all these things happen, it was a hard thing to accept. So he had some open doors for him in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana to go to some churches and minister. And I decided, well, I'm going to go along with you. I'm going to go with you and your wife. We're going to go down and see what happens. And we take off. We ended up in Mississippi, near north of Jackson. And uh, we got on this pastor's house, and we were staying there. I get sick. I got really sick. I think to this day it was Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever because I'd pulled a tick out of my navel about two or three weeks before that. And I came down with this terrible fever and just I was so sick and I just couldn't couldn't seem to get any better. And But Jerry continued to move around. I continued to ride with him. And and uh, we got on down about another month into this thing and, and uh, uh, Jerry was starting to lose it. 
he was just starting to lose it. He uh, was starting to have difficulties with his wife. They had two children. Uh, one night we were driving down the interstate, and Jerry had some deep roots of jealousy in him, not towards his particular wife, but his first wife had left him and went with his best friend. And he had a he had a deep-seated fear of jealousy. And he always transferred that jealousy and that rage to his wife, Sharon, who was his childhood sweetheart. And, uh, uh, and he was off on a kind of a tangent one night, and he was really kind of getting vocal and threatening. And I remember driving down the interstate somewhere down there in Mississippi or Louisiana, and he was getting ready to pop her. He was getting so out, out of control. And I remember him, this guy was trained in martial arts. He was a black belt in martial arts, and I was just a wimpy musician, you know, skinny, 130-pound kid that didn't enjoy fighting. But this guy was a warrior. He'd fought in the Green Berets and stuff, you know. And he's getting ready to physically abuse his wife. I just stood before him, and I said, you touch her, you're going to have to go through me. And he backs off. And uh, But things are starting to unravel. And uh, I was sick at the time, and, and we were moving on down there. We got down to real south Louisiana, edge of Mississippi area. And I finally told Jerry uh, one night, I just felt like I heard a word from the Lord. said, go to Tennessee, get married, get a job, learn responsibility. And in that word, I saw who I was supposed to marry. I'd already met Susan. I saw who I was supposed to marry. And the Lord said, learn to become responsible and develop a heart for me. And someday in the future... I will give you some responsibility in my kingdom. And I remember that that word was in uh, the fall of 1975. I was barely three years old in the Lord. Up to that time, you know, it was Superman. Up to that time, it was Rock the World. Up to that time, it was Billy Graham plus, you know, supersized. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what was in our mind. And God, God got through to me somehow in all that cloudiness of sickness and said, Go become a basically become a responsible Christian and learn responsibility and someday in the future I'll I'll make you responsible in my kingdom and I kind of took that word and hid it in the back of my heart I told Jerry I said Jerry it's time for me to leave you uh, I love you a lot and it's time for me to go and I feel like I need to get on up to Tennessee with the other guys and and uh, get on with what we're supposed to be about and I need to get leave this ministry is not what I'm called to right now so Jerry takes me out on the interstate. He'd been handling all the offerings and everything he's receiving at all the churches he was speaking at. He gives me $20. We hug each other, and he lets me out on the road. In South Mississippi, sick. And uh, I get out of the car, and I'm instantly healed. I'm instantly healed. And the Lord showed me that when you leave him, he's going to come unraveled. He said, you have been the last thing that's been propping him up. And just my friendship and my care for him was propping him up. And uh, so anyway, I get on the road. I have a supernatural hitchhiking trip all the way from South Louisiana to Tennessee. One thing after another. Everything being picked up by a homosexual. He started putting the move on me. I just grabbed his hand. I said, buddy, you want to? I said, I wasn't a fighter, but I was going to take him out. So we're, I said, we're not, we're not going there, buddy. And but, but God used him to buy me a steak dinner and feed me. And uh, uh, take me to my next junction, where uh, I'm, I'm outside of Birmingham, north of Birmingham, on whatever interstate goes up to Chattanooga. Is it 24? Not 24. It's uh, 59. 
And so I'm on 59 on the north side of Birmingham. It's 1 o'clock in the morning, and the guy drops me off. And because he wanted to take me home. No, no way, but... And uh, I'm dropped off 1 o'clock in the morning. I had, I had uh, a few clothes, a suitcase, about 10 or 12 Watchman Nee books in my Bible. My car that was broken down had already been taken to Tennessee by some of my brothers, the friends. And so I'm there outside of Birmingham. I'm getting ready to go to sleep. I'm just dead tired. I'm going to go over and get in the ditch underneath one of the interstate overpasses. And I felt the Lord say, get up and stick your hand out one more time. I mean, I'm here I am again. You know, Mr. Guy mixed up, don't know what the voice of God is. I get up, stick my hand out one more time. The next guy picks me up. One o'clock in the morning. Takes me to Fort Payne, Alabama. Puts me up for the night. Feeds me. We're going along talking. I said, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, I know it's kind of a little risky picking up a hitchhiker in the middle of the night. He says, don't worry. I've got my hand on a 30 caliber pistol or something, you know. Uh, he takes me home, feeds me. Next morning, takes me out to the interstate. I ended up back up in Tennessee the next day and uh, landed, crash landed with no wings, tail, fire, sparks burning. Bam, Tennessee. That's how I landed in Tennessee is what it felt like. Kind of my last vestige of what I was looking for. I'd left college. I left my family. I was a moron in the side of the world. I left the only thing I knew be halfway decent at. Ended up in Tennessee in the, in, the, in, the, in the time of deep recession in the South. And uh, meet Susan. Uh, somehow convince her to marry me. Uh, we get married after six months courtship, which was stupid. But she got lucky. Or should I say Or should I? She's just lucky I didn't turn out to be the absolute mess that I was. Anyway, I was lucky. But we end up, and she was kind of in the summit and had similar but not quite as extreme situations as I'd had. But I crash landed, and our last kind of hope at that time was uh, this church that we were part of under this other prophetic ministry. And there was a pastor there that kind of took us under his wings a little bit. And we got involved with a church that had probably in a, in a two or three year period, literally thousands of people passed through this church. And Susan thinks 2,000 in the two years she was there. People coming in and out, looking for a resting place, looking for a fellowship, looking for a prophetic. You know, we're still preparing for the end of the world. And uh, we get involved with this church very deeply. We're meeting three and four times a week. And we're, we're gathering to form something. And, and, and we had all kind of crash landed together, our group from Oklahoma. Three or four of us were part of the seven prophet group that you know, was supposed to be part of the seven prophets. And... We crashed. We crashed together. I was the latest lander, and I landed with no wings. But and, and during that period, I convinced Susan to marry. We joined. We get part of this church. We're helping build it, uh, phys, the physical structure for the meeting place. Soon I get married in a gravel floor block building, uh, building with trusses on it, and insulation on the ceiling. That's the building we got married in, under this pastor who was prophesying Susan's doom for marrying me. <laughs> Yeah, kind of. He announces the day before the wedding, come see Sister Susan's funeral tomorrow. You know, he didn't like me. He had run me off from the church two years before that when I came through as one of the world prophets. And uh, anyway, we get married in this church. We get really involved in giving and our, our involvement. Uh, 1977. I'm trying to get you to the 1982 very quickly. 1977, 
this church begins to manifest its corruption. Uh, it was all about money. It was all about control. There was nothing there about body life. There was nothing there about leadership, uh, an opportunity. only way you could get a pl- platform to speak at that church was you had to kiss up to the pastor, the elder there, and he, w- he might grant you a limited sharing time and be acknowledged as, as someone who could be a local contributor to that body. And if you brought enough money regularly, then you would get his attention. You, know, you could kind of buy your way into it just by being a rather tithe, regular tithe and offering giver. And um, I was questioning everything I'd ever thought, everything I'd ever believed, every gift, every manifestation. And I'd even gotten married according to some of what I'd heard. So if you imagine you know, the, the, the heaviness of all of that, it was crashing and burning fast. My, uh, my good friends, some of my long life friends that I'd grown up with, in high school and junior high, my best friend Kevin finally came to Tennessee later and joined this church. And he was all excited. Brought his wife and his kids, and he moved late. And he had, he'd kind of left us early in this Elijah thing. And uh, he comes, and then he ends up leaving. And he was like my last. You know, you ever had a bosom friend your whole life? He was that way. And he uh, he gets, starts getting disillusioned. And he says he's going back to Oklahoma. And he comes by to tell me he's leaving. I mean, he's leaving, man. He's leaving. We've never had the opportunity. We've spent time since then. But that was it. 1977, my friend Kevin leaves my life almost permanently. Uh, he comes by. I'm so tore up. I'm so shook. I'm so upset and disillusioned. And I'm so angry at him for leaving because he's my friend. And he wasn't going to stick it out. And all my friends from Oklahoma end up leaving but one. They all go back. Some of them backslid for good. They've never recovered. So all of them leave. All of them but poke buyers. And we weren't getting along. We were at the point where we couldn't even meet. There was another group, some of Susan's friends, and remnant that was left over from that group from Charlotte who had come for the same reasons. We all crashed and burned at the same time. And we, we, we had come to the point where we would meet. We would, all we could do was meet and pray. We couldn't meet and worship. We couldn't meet and share a word. We would just stumble. Our lips were stuck. Our tongue was stuck in the top of our mouth. We were dumb. We could not speak. All we could do was pray and and talk our disillusioned bitterness. That's all we could do. We would try to meet. We couldn't sing. We couldn't sing. There was never a happy note in us. We were so tore up. We were so down. And uh, so I I basically hit bottom in 77 uh, with... uh, at, 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 the, at this meeting place that we were joined there, come to Tennessee for, with the brother, the twin brother of this pastor, getting up, ministering a word. Susan was pregnant with Sarah at that time. You know, we weren't supposed to have babies either because then the world was coming. And uh, they preached that. They preached. They taught birth control so you wouldn't be bring your children into an evil world. And uh, so... We're, we're sitting there, and I'm, I'm at, at a meeting one night, and there's some teenage kids in the back of the church. One of them is Terry Chris's brother. And we're sitting there at this meeting, this pastor's brother is walking up and down the aisle with his hand out like this. And he has a speech impediment, so I won't mock him too bad, but he's going around, I feel that $20 anointing in my hand. I've got a $20 anointing. He has a speech impediment from a stroke. He's actually been healed from a stroke. He's going on. He's running up and down the aisle. I feel this $20 anointing. And God's showing me visions. God's showing me visions of cars and telephone poles. People are going to die 
for not giving this $20 offering. And uh, I remember sitting there, and Susan was there. You were there that night, right? You were at church. But uh, it's going on, and and, uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at these teenage kids, and I'm I'm looking at this preacher walking up and down the aisle telling people they're going to crash in the telephone pole if they don't have $20 to give. And we were poverty-stricken. This ministry skinned us of everything. If you got it, you gave it. Or you were, you were ter- the other ministry was so heavy on giving, and you felt so condemned. If you left a dollar in your billfold at the end of a meeting, you were holding out on God. You weren't selling out to God. You were of the world. You, God was going to kill you. You know, you were, it, I, I'm leaving out many of the gruesome details. But I remember sitting there at that point, and I remember uh, when that twenty-dollar anointing was on this guy. I said, God. I'm through with this. I said, if this is it, you're just going to have to be through with me because I am not going to raise my upcoming child in this environment. I am through with this kind of crud. And you can do whatever you want to do with me. So I take out of that church. I'm upset. I don't know if I did or not. (laughs) Probably didn't. I probably already given it. And uh, so I take out of there. I had a little... uh, I don't know, a 64 Plymouth Valiant blue. And I take out of that, and we just had a big rainstorm. And I'm going down the road, angry, crying out to God, upset, tore up. And uh, I remember going around a curve and hitting a big slick spot and going, bam, right into the side of it. And I have a wreck, and I barely can get the car out of the ditch, but it's still running and drivable. And uh, so I drive the the car back to pick her up and take her home and we never go back there I was uh, about two or three months before my first daughter's birth in 1977 and shipwrecked broken hearted disillusioned felt like my whole life was ruined had met Susan brought her into my terrible journey and she probably felt the same way as me I've been brought into her terrible journey we were at the journey's end hey Good. Sorry this is taking so long. Okay. And uh, so we're 77. We hit bottom. Uh, for the next two or three years, I remember being absolutely tormented out of my mind. Just that God was going to kill me. I would hear words all the time. You're not going to live through this day. You're going to crash on the way to work. You're going to die. And all this stuff, I hear it all the time. One day I was on a job. I, I, when I moved to Tennessee, my only skills up to that time were uh, I could run a grocery store. I developed that in high school, and I, could, I was a musician. You couldn't get a job in Tennessee at McDonald's Hamburger at the time. You could not get a job, period. I finally got one at a hardware store for $1.30 an hour. That's what I got. When I got married, that's how much I was making an hour. And uh, I was making $1.30 an hour working for a uh, penny-pitching man and wife who just absolutely tormented you and worked you to death for $1.30 an hour. We go into two or three years of you can't get much lower as far as feeling the spirit of hope. Your prayers seemed like they were useless. Your Bible studies condemned you. Uh, the... Uh, Everything, everything brought negativity. One day I was on the job and I was just so sorrowful and so down and so depressed. I was, if you've been around construction side, I finally got a job on a construction job from a Christian guy that used to be in that church that I was part of, and he was paying me a dollar sixty an hour. 
I'm working for him, and I'm, I'm up on this scaffold, and I'm kind of just in it, you know, I'm kind of out of it, you know. And I'm, you ever been on pumper jacks? Anybody know what pumper jacks are? It's just where you roll, you, it's a jack, and you pump it up, and you go up on this big long walkboard, and you can let it back down by rolling it down. Well, I was sitting there just so tormented, and I was rolling this thing down. I was just rolling, rolling it down. When I do, I go too far with one side. When I do, the walkboard slips off the other end, and it goes, and I fall straight back off of it. And I remember laying there in the mud as I'd fallen backwards. Fortunately, it was mud. And I just started crying. I said, God, I said, this is kind of it. And I just kind of, this is kind of, uh, this kind of pictures where I'm really at. Laying here hurt, tormented, low, dead in the mud. And I remember just kind of getting up and shaking it off and driving home that day, thinking I was going to get killed on the way home. And because uh, if you're around all these judgmental messages, where there's signs and wonders following, it puts something deep down inside of you—a fear, a fear, fear of these prophetic ministries. And uh, don't don't question them, don't test them. They always have the scriptures. To, you know, don't question Moses, don't question the authorities that are over you, etc., etc. Uh, one thing I learned in all of this: the Lord does not mind being tested. He doesn't get upset at all. In fact, He's the one that said it to try every spirit. And the reason He said that because He wants you to test. And he didn't get mad at Gideon. God is faithful and he's real. So I'm going along in this bottom pit. This pit lasted from like 19, from Sarah's birth, which took place in the late 77, around December, on December 9th. Uh, she's my first baby, and I just fell in love with her when she was born. She was just so beautiful. I remember crying when she was born. She's just too beautiful, Lord. She's just so gorgeous, Lord. She, is, she, just, she just makes my day to come home to hold her and Sarah and I were always very close and until uh, she got married and uh, so so we uh, we're, we're getting uh, near the birth of Michael which was late 79 about the same time of year Sarah was born and Michael's comes real early and we were home birthing we couldn't, we couldn't afford a hospital I mean we just couldn't I mean we were really poor to say the least we couldn't afford a hospital if we wanted. Yeah, because we we were starting to get into that. We were getting into home everything. Home church, home births, home cooking, home everything, you know. <laughs> home is where your heart was, and that's the only place we had was home. A little run-down country house. And uh, anyway, uh, so Michael's born. He's born real early, about five and a half weeks early. And we didn't know if he's going to make it. And he comes out screaming. He's fine. And he was a little bitty five-pound little thing you put in a shoebox, and he grows up to be a tall young man. But uh, so we have him. We're going along, and we're getting we're moving towards the first of the 80s. And again, life's difficult. Things are poor. The Jimmy Carter recession came on the heels of the other recession from the early 70s, and and you couldn't you just couldn't make any money. You couldn't get a job if you weren't from there and didn't know somebody, didn't have a business in place before that. You're just out of out of luck. And I started a little business for myself, painting and picking up just little jobs and stuff. And left the guy, the builder I'd been on two or three years before that. We're at bottom. One day, I, you know, I was just I was studying, and I continued to try to read the scriptures. I continued to try to make sense out of, out of it all. I, ch- I continued I continued to try to to understand what was real, so that I wouldn't let it go, because there were things I, I knew were real. There was a reality in all of this that I, I've never forgotten to this day. And I, but I couldn't sort it out. I could not sort it out. So you know, you, you, I was tempted to throw it all away. And I was very close at many times. I wasn't really close to backsliding, but I was close to just saying, forget it all. I'll just figure out something here. 
But I was, and but the torment of leaving, leaving ministries, etc., was there. And one day I was reading, and I was reading the Book of Revelations, and just reading the letters of exhortation. And I remember reading about what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans meant, which had to do with man suppressing another man in the kingdom. And uh, I was reading that, and I was kind of my eyes were kind of having a little bit of enlightenment there. And I remember something broke through on me there. I've not called you to be under bondage to any man. Be free. And I remember hearing that, and I recognized it as whatever I could recognize it as. In the middle of all this stuff, you know, having all these years, there was a, there was, there was real, and there was a false. And I recognized it enough to be real that I went out of the kitchen that that evening, just shouting, thanking the Lord. I said, Lord, I just thank you, Lord, for that. And I remember a freedom came on me, but I was still down in the pit, still low, no direction. The people I were fellowshipping with. I didn't really enjoy. They were a mess. They were just constantly something going on all the time, stupid, and just constant problems. And uh, trying to have fellowship with people. But in 1982, we met a church up in Michigan. Was considering uh, joining this church. Met them. I think it's 81, but it's considering joining them because they seem to have a community life and a fellowship life. And went up to visit them at some point later, but. I just want to finish with this part of the story. It was at this junction in time, uh, Susan got pregnant with Nehemiah. And up to this time, we were still one step out of preparing for the wrath of God and the end of the world. Every, I mean, to go through those times and go through the ministries that, that a lot of us would have some form of confidence in or have some tie to in the past, the Bill Britons, etc. You know, there was there was Sam Fife's, the you know, all these different ones that maybe had some uh, affiliation. There was always this end time thing that the judgment, the dark days of God are ahead uh, and prepare for it. So that was always our kind of our mentality. We were born and hatched, raised and, and nurtured in that for ten years as Christians. And in 1982, kind of reaching bottom uh, Susan's kind of getting. We were getting close to the birth of Nehemiah, and I was I was a little bit perkier, you know, during those days. I was a little perkier. I was sitting there one night studying in the living room. It's about a week or two before Nehemiah was born, and I, we hadn't got a name for him up to that time. I, I'd always felt like what what who what our children were going to be until we had Mercy. I never missed it. I always knew we were going to have a girl or a boy until Mercy came. And I missed it on Mercy. And I'll tell that story sometime. Uh, never had sonograms, yeah. Couldn't afford them if we wanted them. But anyway, I'm getting close to the birth of Nehemiah. And Susan's fully bloomed. And uh, I was up reading one night. I was just reading the book of Nehemiah and studying it, kind of enjoying it. You know, just, well, that's a good good thing here. You know, I was kind of recovering. You know how you lick your wounds, and after a while, your wounds kind of heal over a little bit. And I was, my wounds were starting to heal over a little bit. And I remember sitting there reading the book of Nehemiah going, wow, you know, this guy was awesome, man. He built, he rebuilt the walls. He was a, he was a warrior, He and he was a kingdom man. He built the temple, and he built the walls. You know, he, he was a complete servant in difficult times. And I remember reading, you know, I remember the scripture in Daniel that the wall will be built in troublous times. And and uh, I started thinking about Nehemiah. You know, he what a man, what a what an instrument of God. And... and there, that, that still voice of the Lord kind of cuts through all the, the mess and comes upon me on the couch there. He said, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Nehemiah. 
uh-oh, here I am, whack job again. I ain't no name like Nehemiah. So you're going to have a son and name him Nehemiah. And, and he will be a man of my kingdom. And he will be a kingdom restorer and a holy man after my heart in future times. And I remember, I mean, several things hit me at that time. Number one, giving him a name like Nehemiah. Number two, that he will be something someday. And and that kind of struck me. Lord, that means it's not about over right now. The end of the world is not next week. You know, I had Sarah, you know, Sarah and Michael and... You know, I thought, well, they'll get to be four, five, six years old, and we'll see it all over. And you know, we were sure they would never start school. Now the end was dark. You know, we were ready. We were ment- mentally prepared, to say the least. Mentally wrongly prepared. But, and I hear that that kind of word, kind of cutting through everything. And I'm just going, I go, wow. That means we're going to be around for a while. That means, do I need to start living life like a normal human being? Uh, what what do I need to do here? But. Susan, I think I guess it was the next few days whenever I finally talked to her about it. I said, Susan, I feel like the Lord gave me a word the other night, and uh, I believe we're going to have a boy, and we're to call him Nehemiah. And I remember she just she was broken. And uh, the word Nehemiah is uh, we, our very rawest uh, definition means you know, the comforts of the Lord restored. And I remember when I told her about that, how she just began to break in pieces. And begin, and we just started praying about it. And we both sat there and we wept, we prayed, we cried, we rejoiced. And it was like all the heaviness of the last five years just lifted off of us. When I was um, early in the pregnancy with Nehemiah, um, I was uh, out. We had dairy goats, and I, went, I was out milking the goats one evening. And, uh, and the Spirit of the Lord came to me. We had, like he described, we had been in a very, very dark, depressed time. Um, I have a whole another testimony of my own of that very, very dark time. And uh, the Spirit of the Lord came to me that evening and, uh, and said, uh, the darkness is over. And, uh, and the, uh, the, day, the day is coming. The day is... is is coming that darkness the dark time is over and i just felt it so strong i didn't tell him about it uh and it was several months later by the time uh, about a week before nehemiah was born when he had his experience so i was very prepared for the name of the child to be the the comforts of the lord restored because god had spoken that to me you know in the early part of the pregnancy that's why i guess she went to pieces when i told her that It was at that time that that cloud of depression lifted off of me, and I've always been—I'm a melancholic type person. I'm a, you know, I'm one of these uh, deep musician types, you know. You know, have a struggle with that personality side. But I, I can say from that time when that lifted off of me, I've never—I mean, I've had some dark moments, but I've never fallen back into that again since that time in 1982. And the Lord was like at that time you know, made real. There's a future ahead for you, and just start moving towards it. And we start having more kids. And we had more kids and more kids. <laughs> and we ended up with 10. Our last one here, which is Seth, where he's at. And, uh, but, I, you know, I, let me just kind of close in saying this. You know, this is probably said for a lot of reasons. Reason, And I don't like to talk about this. This is a hard story for me to tell. And there's a lot more to this story. Steve Smith, Steve Smith ended up being a homosexual. 
died of AIDS. He was the whole time. He was a homosexual the whole time he was ministering in the prophetic gifts. Married to Susan's sister. Used to go leave her at night and go out and find boys. Used to have the ministry to help homosexuals, he told me one time. I said, oh, really? You help homosexuals? I can help you. He says, well, the reason you have that problem, brother, is because you really are one. He died of AIDS. Jerry Flick, who I loved a lot. I told you about his jealousy rage with his wife. He never could get over his first wife's relationship with his best friend. He never could get these voices out of his head. He could never distinguish. He wasn't even willing to distinguish at first, but he never could get them out of his head. I hadn't seen him in years. I, I saw him back in, I came real close to leaving Tennessee in 82, about the time Nehemiah was born. I was either going to go to Michigan or I was going to go back to Oklahoma. I had met a brother there who was a great guitar player and great songwriter. We just hit it off. We just flowed fresh. We had fun together. We thought about combining our efforts and talents together, maybe doing something for the Lord. The Lord kind of slammed that door and told me. But in the meantime, I'd come through to see Jerry. That's how I met this guy. Because I just I, I cared about Jerry. His wife used to weep every time she'd see us. You're the only ones that really showed, you know, your love has been true, even through all this. And uh, that was the last time I saw Jerry. That was in uh, that 82. And I went back to see Jack Marshall. That was the guy, the musician. About two or three years later, when uh, again, just to say hi or something, and I saw Jerry. And uh, as the last time I saw him, uh, later on in early 90s, I started thinking about him. You know how you do, you get kind of, you know, you start thinking about your friends and your past and you kind of become nostalgic. And, and I just had all types of warm affections for him because I really loved the guy. We were good friends. He wasn't a terrible guy. He was blast to be with, intimate. We worshiped God and wept in tears together. Ate, love, you know, ate food together, fasted together, you know, and did all kinds of things. Well, Kevin, my friend, calls me in early 90s. Says, well, I just, have you heard about Jerry? And I said, no, I hadn't heard about Jerry. I just had, had thoughts that day about him, though, about just right about that time. He said, well, I, I ran into some guy that worked, that knew his dad, knew the company that his dad owned. He owned a large uh, studio series of studios all across Oklahoma photography studios so I ran into one of the guys who worked for that company and they said Jerry had murdered his wife two years earlier had just finally listened to the voices about his wife's unfaithfulness and she didn't have an unfaithful bone in her and he went out and took her out one night went in and turned himself back into the police and is locked away in a penitentiary life without parole and the only reason he didn't receive the death sentence was because Sharon's parents had mercy on him. They said we would rather him see, have life without parole than be put to death. I talked to his brother after I found that out, called his brother and talked to him, found out more of the details. And he said Jerry had basically been totally insane for three years in prison. The reason this story can be and should be told at times, I guess, to some people are for several reasons. One, I made it through and I still had a heart for the Lord. And I still wanted to serve him. Almost all my friends didn't make it. They all backslid. Backslid into extreme bitterness, total resentment towards me for even staying with the Lord. But I made it. And that's when I, I read the scripture, you know, there at the beginning about uh, enduring the race. There's a race a lot of times we don't know what we're going to run into. And we, we have to set our heart towards the Lord that we understand that it's a race and go through what we have to go through. Number two, I guess the reason to talk about this in light of maybe some of the things that have developed recently in the body of Christ and, and really have always been there is that there is 
a lot of times what appears to be a glorious actual move of the Lord that is mingled with heavy deception. A lot of God's good and best people get totally carried away into this stuff. And as my life and my testimony, there were many, many casualties. There were many casualties along the trail here of of good friends who were Jesus people just like me who followed the the normal, what seemed to be the, the procedure of the leading of the Lord in their life and they ended up in situations that they just couldn't comprehend and couldn't handle and they fall away. But there... There, there is a lot of deception in the body of Christ, and and uh, the the church a lot of times just doesn't know how to handle it, doesn't know what to do with it. They either swallow it hook, line, and sinker, and take the results when the when the lines jerked out, everything else comes with it, or or they're unwilling to test. Uh, the, the the other side of that is people just quit believing in the in the supernatural, and they just kind of get away from it. They they go the other side, and then they just become fundamentalist or whatever where they can stay comfort and safe and I can understand all those people I'm very tender towards any type of people that they go go I, I, I used to be very condemning of denominations and different orders you know but I understand why they get there the Lord has given consolation and I guess the word would be you know uh, one thing I learned in all of this the Lord does not mind being tested he doesn't get upset at all in fact he's the one that said it to try every spirit. And the reason he said that because he wants you to test. And he didn't get mad at Gideon. God is faithful and he's real. He does teach us. And for some reason I went through this process of learning. And I, and I, because I went in as a naive, young, gullible that we got allowed into this. I know with Jerry, you know, I don't, uh, he was such a brilliant man. I mean, his artist. There's a point that I would like to make um, about this kind of thing. We always want to judge the outcome when we hear stories like this. We say, well, they were never solid or they didn't really have what God was doing. They didn't understand it or they made it up. It was all manufactured or they, was, or they were just faking it. But as God really moved in my dad's life, he testifies of the reality that was going on. These men loved God. They were pursuing God. They weren't faking. It was absolutely real. The main thing I always notice, and this is the point that I wanted to make, is that Satan wants to destroy the most meaningful things that God wants to do. He can do that through our choices and through our pride and through the things that enter into the human heart. And that's what unraveled these men. This type of thing is the way God moves. He'll pour out and Satan comes in and tries to destroy it. And oftentimes, like Dad said, there are many casualties. And that's the point that I, I just like to make. We, we want to judge from the outside and act like that it doesn't, didn't happen or it wasn't real or we would have seen how foolish it was. But the reality is it's tough. It's not easy. Well, get back into it. He was one of the nation's young artists that people were calling the next Picasso. He was a musical genius. You know, why did his life get wrecked? You know, Satan went after him. Satan went after him to destroy the testimony of the reality of God in his life. And he did it. He destroyed his life. A lot of casualties. I was one of the near casualties. And uh, Sharon, his wife, was the worst of all casualties. And then the second were his two children, John Paul and Rachel Flick. His name was Jerry Flick. And uh, I don't know what's happened to them this day. Last I knew that they were good Christian kids. Somehow they survived. Be bold. Be cautious at the same time. Uh, have faith. If you do have very troubling things, events in your life that 
cause you to maybe want to give up because there will be things that will make you want to feel like you really the only op- option you have is giving up. Don't give up. The Lord is faithful because He was faithful with me and Susan. And it doesn't mean we haven't been through some extreme trials and tribulations since then. We have, but they were different types. Hallelujah. Right after that, things went into motion that kind of moved towards what we're involved with now, which has been a much longer period than that period that I just described and about a tenth as eventful as those first two or three or four years were. They were and sometimes you go, well, God, well, well, I'm ready for the hot stuff to come back. You know, for real. But you have to learn through experience yourself what the voice of God is. And, you, and there, are, there are godly principles, biblical principles of spiritual revelation that God doesn't cross those spiritual laws to speak to his people. He doesn't manifest himself in an eastern mystical way to the church. So anything that comes on as some eastern mystical manifestation and has that type of characteristics and personality is not of God and it will turn out failing and it will lead you down the wrong path. And God doesn't require you to put your mind away to hear his voice. Well, of course, the, the Lord's has to be the center. And, and ultimately, it's not about any flesh glorying in his presence, any one man, member. And pride's a deception, a deceiving entity. Uh, spiritual pride is very deceiving. And I would say, you know, I would say along the important thing is spiritual pride, you pay a price for it. I read the scripture there in Psalms 131. I've not been lofty. My eyes aren't lofty, and I don't mess with things too high for me. I don't look at people condescendingly. You know, if that stuff's present in you, you are in danger, especially if you're in any type of place of leadership or place of influence. And uh, the quicker you're broken of those things and just can stay right where you need to stay, no matter what, how, what, how you might be being used, are elevated because those things will always lead to a downfall. Mm-hmm. And as uh, uh, far as fruits coming, there were fruits all the time happening. People's lives being changed, salvation, resurrection, life, miracles. And, and, and a lot of people were changed that maybe never even knew later what happened. You know, we don't know what happened to those three or 400 kids that came down and gave their heart to the Lord. We only met a few of them, you know. Uh, and I just want to say again, the what God did was absolutely amazing, and the, the thousands of people across the country, but just involved in these men's lives and my dad's story, people were touched. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ was coming out, and people were getting delivered out of all kinds of stuff. And then the deception, the just the subtle lies and the pride enters in, and that can unravel it. But thankfully. My dad made it through. The testimony of God's grace continued. We don't know, uh, but there were fruits at least at that time. You know, a lot of one thing you'll notice in some ministries, even you know, is that there become there can become a presumptiveness in, in, in an individual that can somehow believe that because they have such a an anointing or ability to touch people that they can kind of move beyond God's leading and God's heart and begin to do what they think needs to be done. And when they do that, they they move off the they move off the path and don't even know it. Uh, there's exception to God's spiritual rules and principles, and there's not. There really isn't. And that could be which could turn into some form of presumptiveness, which is which is really evident many many times in things that are going astray. And and ultimately, you, when you when you, you if you don't know the in, deep inner workings of it, 
there there is probably uh, a resistance to authority. There's probably a resistance to uh, advice. You know, there's a willingness to be on your own, out there, and no one can tell you anything because you know God's voice. When that type of thing's present, there are dangers lurking uh, imminently, and they will. Something's going to slide off the hill here. Brokenness accepts authority and accepts being in authority without abusing it. But brokenness brings a contentment with where God places you and where God puts you. And you're happy with the role that God has chosen you for. You're not threatened by somebody else's uh, prosperity or you're not, you're not threatened by your own demeaning even. You're, just, you're, you're, you're glad to be a servant of the Lord. And it takes that ultimately it takes that type of heart because you won't survive difficulties if you can't come to that place. And that's what God's after. Because ultimately what God's after is He wants an instrument that He can pour His glory through in the earth. And He wants to... And I say God doesn't give a machine gun to a two-year-old. But a lot of times we get our hands on one and we end up shooting it up in the name of the Lord thinking we're doing His will. And there's all kinds of casualties. Well, God wants to give us a machine gun, but... He wants to train us extremely for it. And, and having a right heart, meekness and brokenness will qualify us to be able to handle God's bigger tools. And uh, there's big tools out there to be used. And God's calling us to them. Get very involved with letting the Lord's work being done in your heart. so that Because I believe there is another move of God coming. And it's maybe already started. And God has placed different people through circumstances to prepare them. What we did not have in our move was leaders. One thing, they either were dictators, but they were never true leaders and, and role models. And uh, they, you know, so we didn't have the, any benefits for the most part. Well, that's it. My dad's story, it's it's intense with lots of unbelievable turns, uh, but it's, it's true nonetheless. Um, <laughs> this is the short version of the story, actually. I remember dad sharing it over uh, about 10 Sunday services one time. And all, there's so many stories that he left out of this one, but he gets most of the main details out there and that gets the point across so that you can get the gist of what he was going through. As you heard, that's what I was born into. And I, you know, <laughs> into a vision and a calling that God put on me. Uh, I got a little emotional listening to that. It's, it's, it's always touched me. It's, I've been aware of this from a very young age uh, th- and the spirit of God is calling on me, but just how God moved in my family f- before I was born and, and the, the purpose that he put in my life. And it's, it's sobering, but at the same time, it's an impetus that it pushes me forward all the time to keep pursuing God and not allow anything to entangle me. I hope, I hope this really blessed you and gives you a perspective on who my father was and where I come from. Um, just God bless you. And I will see you next time.